Thank you so much. Uh, what a privilege, what a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Uh, I've heard so much about you from Eugene. It's been very good. So I'll tell you what, if you came in this morning and were not saved, uh, that music, the band, I'll tell you what, now you are. Uh, now you know. Uh, that, that was outstanding. My goodness. Um, the, thank you so much, the musicians, singers. Uh, what a, what a, that was amazing. Um, just, in, uh, just helping us all engage with Jesus. Um, Eugene, thank you again for the invitation. Uh, it's a treat to be with you all this morning. Let me just say a bit about myself, uh, because to every speaker, there's a biography. And you know, you, as I share with you in these next few moments, uh, it's helpful for you to know just something of who I am, who this guy is in front of you, who's sort of uh, giving you some information, hopefully pushing you uh, towards Jesus in all of this. Uh, if I were to give two words that describe and, and just who I am, I'd use one word, encounter, and another word, grace. Encounter and grace. Uh, I am a uh, dual citizen. I, I was born and raised in Canada. That means if you prick my skin, I still bleed maple syrup. Uh, but I'm also now, I married an American. Uh, my wife, Brittany, was born and uh, raised in Bend, Oregon. So we, uh, I just recently became an American citizen a couple years ago. Uh, but more than that, I grew up in a Christian home. But what's interesting about that is that doesn't, as you well know, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean I was a Christian or I knew Jesus. It was in my early high school years where I started asking what philosophers call the ultimate questions, questions of meaning, questions of significance, uh, questions like, why do I matter? What will satisfy me? Uh, and now, of course, I wasn't asking it, say, in those sophisticated type ways, but I was asking still those questions. And in that searching, a friend of mine invited me to a youth group. Now, I knew what youth groups looked like, you know, the, the songs you sing and the, whatever happens at youth group. I knew all those things, but this one particular evening was different. Because when, we, when it came to the point uh, uh, during the night where you sang songs, I remember looking around at all the people, some of whom were my peers, and they were singing as if God was in the room. And to that point, I had never noticed that. Uh, because I was, uh, when I sang songs, I, uh, I was singing about God, but not to him. And there's a vast difference between singing to God and singing about him. When you sing to him, you, it has with it the idea that God is real, that you're interacting with, that you're engaging with him. And in that moment, I was struck with the reality that God is real. And I encountered him. And it was weeks later when I committed my life to following Jesus. And that's really... Uh, that set me on a path of communicating the, the beauty and attractiveness of Jesus, uh, both here and also further afield. So that's one word, encounter. But the other word is grace. Grace, in shorthand version, is unmerited love, unmerited favor. And grace so much sums up who I was, but also who I've become in Christ, uh, and one story sums this up. Years ago, so a couple years after I committed my life to Jesus, I, was, I went on a mission trip. So w I uh, lived close to Toronto, Canada, and we went to Quebec, Canada, the, the French-speaking province of Canada. And it was a two-week mission trip. And uh, for mission trips, you know, I, if you've ever been on a mission trip or any kind of even maybe a humanitarian aid trip, you use different ways by which you raise funds. You can write friends, you can write family. And in this case, at this particular church I was at, we had uh, one mechanism by which we sold chocolate bars, okay? Now just bear with me, this is gonna have meaning in the story. But anyway, 
I got all of us on the mission trip. We uh, we were given boxes of chocolate bars to sell, and the more we sold, the more money we would raise towards you know the food and lodging costs that we would incur on this mission trip. Well, I bumped into a challenge because you see, I like chocolate, and I started eating the chocolate bars instead of selling the chocolate bars for this trip, and. I ate my way through most of the box of chocolate bars I was given to sell for this mission trip. And now I raised funds otherwise too. I, uh, through family and friends, I went you know, door to door in my neighborhood asking for help for, to, to go on this mission trip and I was able to raise all the funds, but I still had eaten my way through the chocolate bars and never paid the money back. Now I know what you're thinking, some of you, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Hold on, so Nathan, you, you not only stole, which is first strike, Second strike is you stole from the church. Two strikes. But three strikes is you stole, you stole from the church and you stole from the church for a mission trip. I mean, come on. Now that's just telling you something of who I was. Anyway, uh, we go to the mission trip and halfway through this mission trip, I, the guilt is eating away at me. And so I, I talked to my pastor and I said, you know, Pastor Dave, I need to meet with you. I need, I, I, you know, we need to talk. So we talk, and uh, I felt it was very apropos because we were staying at a monastery. So here I am confessing to my pastor in a monastery. So we were in this monastery, and we step outside on the patio uh, uh, out of our living space there, and I talked to him, and he said, Nathan, what, what do you want to talk about? And I said, look, I have to tell you something very serious. Um, I, I'm, I don't know how to say this, but you know those chocolate bars that we used to raise money for the trip? He said, yes, yeah, of course. Well, I ate the whole box, and I, I never paid the money back. And I'll tell you, as funny as it sounds now, it was equally just guilty. I felt it was just completely eating me up. And I was expecting him to say, you know, whatever, like fill in the blank for like how I could be shamed or embarrassed in that moment. Like, you know, Nathan, we're going to have to take you, you know, maybe tomorrow morning during the team meeting, you just tell, tell the team what you've done. And I was expecting all that, and I just said, look, I'm really sorry for all this. I, I don't know what to do, but I had to confess to you just this. It's wrong, and there it is. And he said to me, um, Nathan, we, won't, we, won't, we don't need to tell anybody about this. Um, I forgive you. You need to pay all the money back um, to the church but why don't we just pray that God helps you to never do that again and that he cleans you of that. But we don't need to tell anybody about that. I forgive you and we'll pray that right now God forgives you for this. And I'll tell you that, you know, for some of you, you might be thinking, this is really odd. I mean, we have a guest speaker on Sunday and he's telling us a story about stealing chocolate bars. How does this bear relevance to life today? Uh, well, for me, it's sort of just getting you inside sort of my life because that moment actually was profoundly formative in that seeing the embodied expression of Jesus where actually I could have been shamed. He would have been okay in saying, look, you know, need, need, need to tell your friends about this, need to tell the whole team what you've done. Instead, he says, no, no, actually, this is, we can do business with God right here. And that shaped me profoundly. And so much of those two words, encounter and grace, are not actually my story. They're actually our story. They're stories of people who actually engage with God. We encounter him. And we also receive that unmerited love, unmerited favor that God gives to us. So that's a bit of who I am. Now, as we look at, at uh, we're going to look into a passage of scripture. Uh, 
one of the infancy narratives, one of the stories that describes how Jesus comes into this world. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if digital device or hard copy, I think we'll have it on the screen too. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'll start reading here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray. Father, in these next few moments, I pray that you would help us to hear from you. Pray that these moments would truly be formative for us. Give us eyes to see. See you at work. See the truth, the power, beauty of the gospel, but also to hear you Hear you speak to our hearts and minds. Come, come by your spirit and work in our hearts today, Lord, in your name. Amen. So I want to take a close look at that passage we just read, and I want to zoom in on one question. And the question is, how do you and I, how can we find hope in this Christmas story? Hope for today, hope in the grind of life, in our marriages, in our families, in, in our relationships, in, in maybe at school, college, at work, with our colleagues. How does this story speak hope into our everyday lives? And to give you a bit of a roadmap, we'll first just look at the contextual contours of this passage because the context really fills in the meaning. And then we'll, we're going to just come back and zoom in on that question. How does all of this, how does this passage give us hope for today? So first, the context. Verse one, we start with Jesus. Uh, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. That's the starting point of this story. And that's important because for the original listeners, that would not just have meant, okay, here's a marker, Jesus Christ has been born. More than that, it meant for them, waiting is over. Because for the Jewish community, they had not been just waiting years. They had been waiting hundreds of years for the Messiah. And now for the original listeners, when they hear that Jesus has been born, they see the waiting is over. He has come. But more than that, it was painful waiting. B because their 
life as they knew it had been marked by oppression, by different empires, by the Persian Empire, by the Greek Empire, and then now when we see Jesus coming to earth, the Roman Empire under which Herod, known as Herod the Great, was ruling. Now, we, we, we should just stop there because those are the first descriptions we find in verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, point one, in Judea during the time of King Herod. Now, who is King Herod? It's important to understand just something of who this man was uh, to help us make sense of how people lived. What was, what was their attitude towards life? What, what actually weighed on them? What was the ambient noise in their world? Herod, known as Herod the Great, uh, one scholar put it like this, he was both brilliant and brutal. He was, ra- and he was very complex. He was racially an Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, politically Roman, very complex. And he was known for two things. One, his extensive building projects, notably the temple in Jerusalem, but also cruelty. Not a great thing to be known for. But that is some of the makeup of this very complex guy we know as Herod the Great. So leading up to Jesus coming to earth, you have this waiting, but it's not just waiting, it's, it's pregnant with painful waiting, oppression. And then we see there's cruelty and violence, the markers of this ruler named Herod, but also fear. If you look, as was read for us earlier, the beginning of the service, Luke 1, if you look at Luke 1, but also Matthew 1, the two spots that we see the early days, the birth of Jesus, known as the infancy narratives, you see that when the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph, the father of Jesus, and then, sorry, no, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, but then the angel of the Lord appears to uh, Joseph. Both accounts, when the angels are telling Mary and Joseph about Jesus, both times they say, do not be afraid. Which is interesting because for us we think, hey, why would you say, this is great news, we have a Messiah coming, the waiting is over, the tumult is over. We now have him. That's not what's going on, though. Why would the angel say, don't be afraid? The answer is because there is enormous fear in all this. They are afraid. They're troubled. Mary is troubled. Joseph is troubled. They don't know. It's, it's extremely troubling times for them. And that could be a whole thing going into what made that so fearful. But at the very least, we know that that's part of it, that there was fear in all this. So what's making up the experiences, the emotions and thoughts in the time leading up to Jesus? Waiting, pain, tumult, oppression, violence, fear. So why are these details important? Well, these details are important to know because the more we look into the details, the contextual details of when Jesus arrives, we see that actually we live in strikingly similar times. Where when we look across the globe, we know about wars taking place. This is not something we need to think about too much. We know it's happening. There's unrest near and far in our cities. Tumult tension, turmoil. And if, and if we're honest, some of us, many of us, feel afraid at times. And if nothing else, the context of this story tells us that when God comes to earth, when God becomes flesh, God becomes flesh in a hostile world. 
Things are not clean. They're not made out really clean. It's not as though Jesus was born and he came to the Ritz-Carlton Bethlehem. He, there was no space. There was no space for him. It was, it was incredibly tumultuous times, and that is the context into which Jesus comes. So let's move along here in the, the contextual details. We see that in verses one and two, magi from the east come to Jerusalem looking for one, quote, who has been born king of the Jews. Let's just stop there for a moment. Who were the magi? Well, they are a, a group combination of people who studied astrology, but also priests, which is interesting, but they were, I think the shorthand version is they were a combination of political and religious people. They had influence in those two spaces. Prominent roles too. And one guy by the name of Ken Bailey who was, uh, sadly passed away just a few years ago, he was a great scholar. He wrote a book uh, called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He goes even more specific in saying that actually these guys were uh, Gentile Arabs mostly because he says when they, bring, that when they brought frankincense and myrrh, those, uh, those were harvested from trees that grew in southern Arabia. Now, don't want to get lost in the weeds here because that's like going like way into the weeds here, but the, the important point there is, because one of the questions, why is that important? It's important because Gentile Arabs, translation, not Jewish people, come to see the Jewish Messiah. And they're actually welcome there. They're not boxed out. They're not blocked out. They're actually welcome. And if you think about that, and then in another infancy narrative, we know that Jewish shepherds come to see Jesus. In other words, shepherds were known as very, they were the lower class. One point we glean here is if Gentile Arabs can come and see Jesus, and then also we know that Jewish shepherds can come, that tells us that actually no matter what class you are from, no matter what race, no matter what ethnicity you're from, anyone Everyone can get in on Jesus. Jesus is for everyone. That tells us something about the Magi, but also more than that, what the Magi tell us about Jesus. So we move along here. King Herod finds out about the wise men coming from the east to see the king of the Jews. He's not happy, obviously. He hears about this guiding, this star guiding them. So Herod brings his advisors together to, you know, he needs help. He needs to see, okay, how are we going to mitigate this? In other words, how are we going to eliminate this problem? And he runs into battle because he runs into a bit of trouble because instead of finding consolation and sort of counsel, he, he hears a passage that is prophesying what is going to come. They cite for him Micah 5 verse 2 verse 4, which tells him that, you know, I could just imagine, you know, his, his consultants, his advisors in his, the king chamber saying, look, king, we've got a problem here. Um, this has been an event that's been prophesied for years. So you're sort of up against it here. Got a problem. So it's not helpful news that he receives, but he takes it nonetheless. He gets in touch with the wise men. He sends them to Bethlehem with the idea that, look, go search for the child. Go search for the child, and actually when you find him, tell, tell me, send word back to me so I may come and worship. Translation, get rid of him. He has no plan. He has no plan of worshiping Jesus. So the wise men are led by this star. They come to the place where Jesus is. They come and see Jesus with Mary. They bow down, they worship him, they open up their treasures, and they give him these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So that's a whistle-stop contextual tour through this story. I want to come back to that focus question. 
how does all of this, how does this story breathe hope into your life today? To the everyday situations you might find yourselves in. The stress. Maybe the questions you have. Maybe the fatigue you have. Maybe the crisis you have. How does the Christian story, how does the Christmas story we just read speak hope into your life? Let me share a few observations. First, this story reminds us that God's power, his supernatural power, can break into our world. If this story tells us nothing else, it tells that actually God can make that which is impossible and he can actually make that thing possible. And there are different ways in which we see this working out in the story, but there, there are so many subplots, very dramatic subplots, not least the wise men, Herod, Jesus. But one point that is often overlooked is the star. This moving, this guiding star, and I want to suggest to you that itself, that in itself, this star is a, almost like a signpost. It's a signal to God's supernatural activity in our, in your space and time, in your world. We see, as we look at the different verses, it's actually mentioned frequently. Verse two, we saw the star when it rose. Verse seven, Herod inquires about the star. Verse nine, the star guides them to Jesus. Verse 10, they saw the star and were overjoyed. Now, this can lead to a much bigger question of, you know, miracles, you know, how do we know what miracle is, what makes up a miracle? And that's a message that I'm sure Eugene will give at some point. Um, no pressure. Uh, but that, that's, not, that's, a whole, that's a whole other thing. But fundamental here to the story is that if we, if you and I follow Jesus, if we commit our lives to Jesus, fundamental to believing in this God revealed in Jesus Christ is that he can act, he can intervene in our world. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The uh, Miracles, he wrote these words, but if we admit God, must we admit miracle? Indeed. Indeed, you have no security against it. That is the bargain. Theology says to you, in effect, admit God, and with him, the risk of a few miracles. <laughs> Let me read that again. But if we admit God, must we admit miracle? Indeed. Indeed. You have no security against it. That is the bargain. Theology, in other words, the th study of God, says to you, in effect, admit God, and with him, the risk of a few miracles. What is he saying? He's saying, look, if you actually believe in this God revealed to us in Jesus Christ, you actually throw that door wide open now for miracles to be possible, for God actually able to break into our lives, engage with us, invade our lives, act, speak, do the impossible. And this guiding star is just one symbol, signpost in the story telling us that actually God can act in supernatural ways in our natural world not least by pointing to the stars, pointing to the greater miracle of the incarnation, of God becoming human. Now for us today, practically, what does this look like? It actually reminds us that if we pray, or when we pray to God and call out to him for help, to calm our hearts, to save something that feels so incredibly lost, to heal and bring back something that is so fractured. What this means is that 
we're actually talking and engaging with a God who does that very thing. Because have you ever been in a situation when you're praying or talking to God and you think, man, this, this feels actually sort of useless. This story tells us actually, no. No, you're praying, God hears you. He can act. He can move in that situation. He can change the narrative. God's supernatural power can break into our world. That's one observation here. This, the other, uh, one other observation is that this story tells us God comes to us in our pain. Now, we've discussed already some of the details of, of this, of fear, of pain, of the anxiety, of the tumult, uh, of the con- that sort of colors the context into which Jesus came. But you just think that there's a search going on for the Messiah. They've been waiting hundreds of years for the Messiah. And you've got to think that someone, if they're like you and I, someone is asking the question, God, where are you in this? Where are you right now? Because we see in verse two, they're on the search for the one born king of the Jews. Verse four, the Messiah. Verse six, ruler. Verse six, shepherd. Translation, they are looking for God. They are looking for God. They're looking for God to help. They're saying, where are you, God? So what's the answer? What is the answer in this story? Where is God? Where are you, God? And the answer is, through this Christmas story, God is actually right in the middle of the situation. He actually places himself in the most vulnerable way possible. In weakness, in vulnerability, in risk. Just think of all the ways in which God could have come to this world now, just let's hold that thought for a moment because you think of the context, we need to sort of recover some of the context of Rome. For Rome, when you think of ideas like power, you th- immediately you think might. In Rome, might was right. If you, if you wanted to look at how power was defined, you looked at the military of Rome. They will, if you don't fall in line with Rome, they will make you by force. And so you think of then Jesus, when Jesus comes in the world, you're thinking, oh yeah, he's gonna come, all right. He's going to defeat you. But he comes as a baby. I'm telling you, look, if I'm in that situation in First Palestine, and that's how God comes, I'm thinking, God, we got a problem over here. Uh, what's your plan B, God? Because this doesn't look good. He comes as a baby? But that's actually really good news for those of us who have endured or know weakness vulnerability, risk. This story tells us that God knows that. He knows weakness. He knows vulnerability. But hope isn't necessarily found in the manger as much as it is found actually years down the road at the cross. Because interestingly, the same question that was being asked in, at Jesus' birth, in Jesus' early years, is the same question people would have been asking at the cross, which is, where are you, God? You know, and different, many people have pointed this out, that actually one of the questions that people would have been saying at the cross, you know, uh, not least, say, someone like Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, points out, look, one of the questions they would have said at the cross is, where is God? Because of all the God-forsaken places on earth that, that were, 
the cross was just that. And yet, as Luther points out, and, and many others, actually, it's although, it, it, as though it, in it was, it, as though it was a God-forsaken place, God was almost like secretly working out the salvation of the world right there in that place of shame and torture, in the place that everyone said, God's not there. God was saying, actually, I am right there. I can go to that ghettoized, God-forsaken place. Don't count me out. And there's a lot of hope there. Really good news that actually, in the places where we might have actually said, I don't think God can actually work there. That's, man, that's so gone. That's so beyond reach. God, God is saying through this Christmas story, and ultimately through the Easter story, I can actually work right in that place that actually you've designated off limits. God works in places of pain. And in some ways, as much as we don't like to even acknowledge it, God sometimes does his best work right there. And trust me, just like you, I don't like the valleys like anyone else, but God does his best work right there. And I was reminded of this, if you know, uh, I was reminded of just by the story of a person named, her, her stage name was Nightbird. I don't know if any of you guys remember this uh, artist, Nightbird. She uh, became well-known on this uh, show, America's Got Talent. And she struggled for years with uh, cancer. I think it was three years battle with cancer. Uh, but during that battle with cancer, she wrote this poem and a quasi-essay, short essay, called God is on the Bathroom Floor. And I want to read you an extra because it illustrates the point here of God working, ministering in our pain. This is what she writes. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower tub, shower, in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow, I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, that he will say I disappointed him, or offended him, or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson, or that I was, wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this, he can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to himself, to me, himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God, for I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. 
if an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. Later she writes this. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen to him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. If you can't see him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. You see what she's saying? She's saying something, uh, it's very weighty. This is weighty and heavy, but it's real. It's so much of the Christmas story that actually God is right there on the floor. If you don't find him, if you haven't found him, look lower. He's on the bathroom floor, right there with you. Years, much, 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 going way back, uh, a guy by the name of Edward Shalito wrote, Jesus of the Scars, excerpt from his poem. He wrote, Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. You see, God is on the bathroom floor. He's not looking up from a balcony. He's right there. He doesn't ask you, he doesn't just ask questions about wounds. He has wounds. And what's amazing is there is no other perspective, no other worldview, no other faith that actually will describe this kind of God who has wounds, who knows pain. The Christmas story, this Christmas story tells us that God enters into our pain. His power can break into our world. He knows our pain, but also from the story we see that Christ is king. Christ is king. Now, throughout the story, it becomes very clear who the king is, and that is Herod. He's ruling. He's trying to put the fire out of this person named the king of the Jews. And he has a very hard time, but what's interesting is you have a counter-narrative. You have, yes, you have this one person who's named king, Herod the Great, but then you have another narrative that's emerging, and it's a story that happens with the wise men, and they come, the, the star leads them to Jesus, but when they come to Jesus, they bow and they worship him. Now that kind of action, that kind of action, it was a signal of devotion that was normally exclusive only for high-ranking people or 
a divine being. Now, we can go back and forth and commentators and scholars talk about, did they really know? Did they really know what they were doing when they bowed down at Jesus' feet? We can go back on that. But whatever it is, they knew at least something of who this person was. Maybe not the fullness, but in that, maybe even just small and seeing through the, a glass darkly, so to speak, lens, they knew that this, this was not just another baby. This was not just another child. There was something of God in this baby. But more than that, they're gifts. They bring gifts, and it's gold, frankincense, and myrrh, all gifts that were associated with royalty. Now, why would they have done this? Why, why, would, they, why would they be bowing down, worshiping, and giving this child these royal gifts? Did they know who he was? Did they, did, they know who, did they know that this was God? In a way, we don't know. But we know that actually all that they did know of him, they surrendered all that they had to give, even in their incomplete knowledge of who Jesus was. It reminds me of a story years ago I was in the Middle East uh, speaking at a series of events with uh, uh, many of my colleagues there, and uh, um, we were in one church, and after the services, one guy came to us. He was a pastor on staff there, but he also headed up an NGO, and I'll just leave this, this country unnamed, but the guy said, look, we, Nathan, you know, we, and a few of my colleagues, he said, look, I want to tell you the story about all the people that were taking in. He, his NGO was taking in a lot of refugees from Iraq. Now, at the time, ISIS, if you know ISIS, sort of translation for um, terrorist thugs, uh, they had taken over Iraq, and they were basically forcing people out who did not adhere to Islam. And uh, he said, um, I want to tell you the story about a guy who owned a gold shop in Iraq who has come here. And he said, by the way, look, many of the people we're taking in here, who are refugees, they have done very well in life. They're doctors, they're lawyers, they're engineers, and this guy, he owned a gold shop. I want to tell you about this guy. And so we're listening to him. We, he's got our undivided attention. And he said, ISIS came to this one guy's gold shop and said, made the ultimatum. Either you convert and you can stay. If you don't, then you have to leave and you only have, so you have two hours to get whatever you can get out of your gold shop here. And whatever you get, you keep. And whatever you don't get, we keep. So, there, so he has two hours and he knows he's not, he's not going to convert. He's, he's decided to actually stay a Christian and so he scurries in his gold shop and gets as much as he can possibly get. And he's able, within the span of two hours, he's able to get, according to this person who told us this story, 40 US million dollars worth of gold. That's, but that's, his, that's how he makes a living. That's all of his material wealth. His, that's, that's his living right there. He gets that. He takes it in his car. He goes to the border. And when he goes to the border, he sees ISIS people there. And when he sees ISIS people there, they ask him all the questions when they happen upon this gold, and he explains the story. Look, you know, I was given two hours to get what I can get. Whatever I get, I keep. Whatever I don't get, you keep. So they listen, and they keep inspecting the vehicle. And then they look at him and say, we'll take that gold now. So they take all the gold in this guy, and then they look down at his shoes, and they say, and give us your shoes too. And this man, who had done very well in life, loses all of his material wealth 
as he crossed the border. And I remember this man who headed up the NGO looking at us and saying, look, this man is a Simon of Cyrene Christian. And we didn't understand exactly what he meant. He said, you, know, you remember Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross? Simon of Cyrene didn't actually fully know who Jesus was, yet he still carried the cross because he knew enough about Jesus that he would carry this man's cross. And he said, we have many people who have come here who are Simon of Cyrene Christians. They don't know nearly as much about Jesus as we know, but they knew enough that they're willing to give up their lives for Jesus. That captures something of what these wise men are doing. They identify something about Jesus that actually, there is this king over here called Herod, but actually, this is the king. This is the guy who we've been actually waiting for. This is the person who we were going to bring gifts to. So a question baked into that story for us this morning is, what do we have in our hearts that we haven't actually given to God yet. I find that challenging myself. Have we, have we stored things up that if we were to have a heart-to-heart conversation with God, we'd have to say, you can have this, but you can't have that though. And this morning, maybe God is speaking to us and saying, give me that part of your life. Give me that treasure. I am worth that. That's part of the story. What have we given to God? So as I landed here, let me just land it in the space of what I mentioned a few moments ago. Above all, perhaps in this story, this, this story tells us that God hears us. God hears you. Have you ever wondered, does God actually hear me when I'm talking to him? Does he, hear, does he actually see what's happening? And perhaps more than anything else, the one thought that penetrates this through this story is that God actually hears. Yes, it was years, it was hundreds of years, but this story tells in perhaps the grandest way possible that God hears you. A story that I came upon just recently reminded me of this in a very poignant way, and I'll close with a story. The story is told by a person named J.S. Avril writing in a British Christian publication just um, at the beginning of Advent. This is what she writes. On February 6th of this year, a heavily pregnant Afreya Abu Hadia, along with her husband and their four children, was awakened in the dark early hours of the morning by a 7.8 magnitude earthquake violently shaking their apartment building in Syria. Afreya and her husband gathered their children and made for the building's exit. However, just as they were nearing the door, the building collapsed upon them, crushing the entire family. Afreya, however, seemed to have remained, co- remained conscious for some hours because she did the unthinkable and delivered a baby girl while trapped beneath the rubble. Then, tragically, she died, and her baby was left alone, buried beneath a building in the middle of winter. After the earthquake, relatives and friends rushed to the ruins of the collapsed apartment building in order to try to rescue those who had been inside. As they dug through the debris, one of them reported hearing a voice from beneath the rubble. 
The rescuers followed the sound and eventually uncovered the baby, still attached to her mother by the umbilical cord. She was pulled from the wreckage of her house and family and sped to hospital where she miraculously made a recovery and was adopted by her aunt and uncle who gave her her mother's name. She was rescued because someone heard her voice. The journalist does not specify what kind of noise she was making, but given that she was injured, suffering from hypothermia and barely breathing, it seems it must have been weak crying or whimpering. And considering that she was surrounded by her dead mother, father, and four siblings, and that the entirety of her short life outside her mother's body had consisted of the noise, terror, chaos, and pain of the building falling upon her, it seems impossible that she was hopefully and consciously calling for help. How could she imagine what help might be? Her mother had not even had the chance to hold her in her arms. What could she know of a tender face, gentle hands, warm blankets, nourishment in her belly, soft fabric against her skin, the healing of wounds? She was not waiting or hoping for any of these. She did not even know they existed. She was simply weeping for the terror and pain and loneliness of her little life. But the weeping was enough to save her. That is the story of Christmas. Those who reap, those who sow in tears, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. That's the story of Jesus. Sorrow is not the end. Waiting is not the end. Pain is not the end. Anxiety is not the end. Jesus has the last word. He hears us under the rubble. Do you know, do you know that power this morning? Do you know his saving power, his restorative power to take that which is dead and make it live again? That's the invitation of the story of God's power being able to break into our world, of God coming to us in our pain, that he actually is king and that he hears us. That's good news. It's really good news. That's going to be able to get us through storms. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you hear us that all the songs that we sung at the beginning of the service of Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, God with us, Emmanuel, those things are not just wishes or the power of positive thinking, but actually truths grounded in reality reality in which a God comes to us and gives us hope. God, would you fill each one of us now afresh with your spirit? Fill us now, Lord, in your name.
Amen.